0: Hi, and welcome to the Ugly American Werewolf in London podcast. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving weekend there in America, and that you heard last week's podcast on 2020 in Review, honoring those that we lost, and going over some holiday gift ideas. This week, we're going to take a deep dive into something we actually recommended as one of our holiday gifts last week. Uh, and that's the recently re-released, remastered, Delicate Sound of Thunder album and film by the legendary Pink Floyd. Here on the podcast, The Wolf, that's me, Mac B, and Action Jackson talk about all things classic rock. Progressive rock, hard rock, heavy metal, everything we grew up on and still being made today. And today's dive into one of our very favorite albums of all time, The Delicate Sound of Thunder by Pink Floyd.
1: Good afternoon, good evening.
0: So The Delicate Sound of Thunder by Pink Floyd was huge in the late 80s. It marked so many different changes for the band and I think was pop culturally, probably wasn't as big as something like a Madonna or a U2, you know, Joshua Tree or something like that. But them getting back together for the first time without Roger Waters, bringing Rick Wright back into the band, because as people may or may not know, he was basically fired or, or nudged out during the wall sessions, Um, but he played on the wall, and then he did the wall tour out of obligation, Uh, said, I'm not going to leave you hanging, you don't have to get another member or whatever, and I will play, and because the wall was so expensive to stage, because he was no longer a member of the band, he was a hired musician, he made money off the tour, whereas the other three guys Did not, because the tour lost money. Then, of course, there was, what I feel is the low point of the Pink Floyd catalog, and that's the final cut. And I don't think I'm alone
1: there. Would you? No, absolutely not. And the funny part is, you said you wanted to talk about this, and we've talked about this record a couple different times, Mm -hmm. just in our own back and forth. But more than I thought about it, I guess I I, I didn't really forget, but I kind of forgot This was a huge record for me because I had gotten a hold of *Momentary Lapse of Reason*. Mm -hmm. That was the first. I mean, I had heard *Dark Side of the Moon*. I had heard *Wish You Were Here*. I had heard most of the Pink Floyd. But that, but *Momentary Lapse of Reason* was the was the new record. Like I got it when it was new, so I thought it was my Pink Floyd record. Mm -hmm. And then they came out with this thing, and they had a big. I remember they had a big two page spread in the paper. People. If you remember what a paper is, newspaper, okay, fine. It's yeah. a newspaper, correct. Two thousand twenty, and they had the deal. You know, there were the two guys. The one guy had the light bulbs on him, and the other guy had the crows flying around him. And I went out and bought this thing the first day it came out. I think I rode my bike to the record store because I was like, I don't know, fifteen or something mm-hmm. right before. And I got the I got the tape and I got the, the VHS tape of it to watch the thing. Oh, that's and awesome! Just Blew the top of my head off, because I because they had that they had a good mix of the the momentary lapse of reason songs were one that you want to hear. So this wasn't a greatest hits, you know, just getting the money. Right tour. This was a new tour that they could put out, and everything about that tape was phenomenal. the The sound on it, the visuals, the way that they cut it, it looked like a feature film that you want to see. And I just remember watching it over and over again, thinking, D- I, I'm sad that I missed it. Because it was probably the greatest show ever.
0: I know, I know. and That's the thing. And and living in the Midwest, you live near New York, you know, maybe if you had the wherewithal, you could have gotten out to Long Island, you know, for one of those nights. I think they did five or six out at Nassau when they filmed the movie there. Being in the Midwest, you know, and being, like you say, 14 or 15, pre-internet, guys, there's nowhere to go to figure out whether, you know, you can get tickets and where the band's going except for maybe if they print all the dates in an ad in Rolling Stone or something like that that you happen to pick up. So yeah, it was a big resurrection of Pink Floyd for the album momentary lapse of reason. If you look, the band, quote unquote, is really just David Gilmore and Nick Mason. Rick Wright, who had left at the end of the wall, was not on the final cut. After Roger left, and of course Roger left fairly acrimoniously and tried to get them to stop using the names. Like, I'm leaving. I'm putting the name down, so you have to too. And they're like, No, this happens a lot. People leave bands and you wanna leave, that's fine. And we're gonna continue on.
1: And I think I think that was I think that was huge for them. Having that record, momentary lapse of reason, that was a genuine hit. Like they had songs that you wanted to listen to. Like Uh, I know you and I talked about this. Like you know, on the turning away mm -hmm. or on the turning way. I guess a million times I've listened to that. A million times it was a good record. And now they did this tour. And yeah, I think this was. I I know Roger Waters was probably sitting in his house just saying. Whoopsies, they knocked this one out of the park. Well, see, the
0: thing is, he wasn't. He was on his Radio Chaos tour, and he, I even saw an interview with Roger not that long ago where he said, I'm suing them. I don't want them to use the name, and I don't want them to sing my song, which you really can't do. Um, sorry about that. And it, they were in Cincinnati, and he was playing the Taft Theater, which is a nice theater. It's like a 2,000-seater. And Pink Floyd's playing Riverfront, where like the Reds and the Bengals play, you know, and it sold out. And so, and Roger prevented them from coming to see him uh, on any of his nights. It's like, no, I don't want you here. I don't want anybody from the band. I don't want any, you know, of your management here. I don't want anyone associated coming to the show. Because uh, he was fairly bitter. And here they are continuing to say, with all my songs. Like, yes, you co wrote a lot of those songs, Roger. There's no doubt about it. And they have to pay royalties when they play them live, uh, you know, into a pot, and you still get. A percentage of that but you know yes and and the thing is we've talked about how MTV was such a huge influence and, and important to us well the learning to fly video was on a lot they did have shots of them on stage doing it but they also of course had a theme with the guy kind of jumping through the wheat and all that kind of stuff and it was spacey I mean I think Roger called it a clever forgery but people wanted Pink Floyd and they didn't want the final cut the wall was brilliant but it had been, you know, eight years before Momentary Lapse came out. And it's also yeah. very dark and heavy. And, and you don't have to just sing about the end of the world, Roger. I mean, you can sing about other things as well. Um, of course, Sorrow and Dogs of War, Terminal Frost, these are pretty heavy titles that were on the Momentary Lapse record. But, they yes, they, they basically went out and did this tour. I was just doing a little reading on it. They financed it themselves, Dave and Nick did. And and they, of course, got the lion's share of the money. Once again, Rick was a hired hand. But Nick was going through a divorce, so he had to put up his Ferrari 250 GT as collateral um, to get them funding for it. But it paid off. It was the highest grossing tour of the decade of the 80s. Bigger than the Rolling Stones steel wheels. It did have more dates than that. You know, at over 135 million. In the '80s, hundreds of millions of dollars today, huge success, and I think they went to the U.S. three times, uh, went to Australia, went to Europe, went to you know Japan, just just cleaned it up. And then yes, the discs came out on record. Now you got the cassette and the VHS. I eventually got the CDs, and then had you know a copy of the VHS as well. The film, I'm just glad they made the film. The film is such an important companion to the record. Lots of people make live records. But because Pink Floyd had this incredible stage, and they always been known for their light shows, but they had this amazing stage. They had the big circle in the back that must have been 50 feet tall with all the lights surrounded it, all the video attached to it, the lasers, the smoke, the everything that went with it. And there's about 10 or 11 people on stage. They're using the whole stage there. So there's a lot to see, uh, there's a lot to take in. Uh, and I remember watching it, like you being kind of mesmerized, like, "Oh my goodness, they can really do this at rock show. They take this to every city they go to. This is unbelievable."
1: And the uh, that you're talking about stage show, that ring, the O in the middle, whatever right. that is, that's so iconic now. And I don't know who thought of that, but I mean, you, all you see is a picture of it, and you know, boom, that's the delicate point. sound of thunder. You know, that's the tour. Yeah, I, I was I was kind of on the fence when I saw it because. When you hear it, that's one thing. But then you see, like everybody had a double. Like there was a whole nother drum set. There was a whole nother keyboard. There were about fifteen guitar players. I think <laughs> that might be a little much. But, yeah. but it, for for the and mo- and a lot of the times I don't like that. But it worked because this was such an over the top performance that all of those musicians playing together just sounded awesome.
0: Well, that's right. That's for sure. And I want to go into all those folks because some of them I knew and have kind of followed over the years. Some of I wanted to do a little research on to better understand their background and kind of what's happened to them since. But when you're a band as big as Pink Floyd and that $135 million at the time is all flowing basically to two people, they may have given Rick Wright an Boy. and I hope they took care of the musicians because they, they toured for two years on that, And I know when you're in Pink Floyd, generally, you get to fly first class and to stay in the nicest hotels and, and all that kind of thing. But from the other musicians in the band who are working just as hard as the guys who wrote the music originally, you know, they, they should be taken care of. But I, I see it as a huge triumph of, yes, like you said, this is the new album. This is the Pink Floyd I know, this momentary lapse of reason. And I get into it, and I've seen videos on MTV, and I dig it. And then they meld it with... Their hit songs, and their catalog is pretty robust, obviously, and there was no Pink Floyd greatest hits when it came out. Uh, There was maybe one called The Works that had a few different songs on it. I think there's a little one called The Collection of Great Dance Songs, which had like five or six songs literally on it. It was not like what eventually came out in the 2000s, Echoes, uh, that had all the kind of the best, even the Sid Barrett years and kind of threw all the way to the end there. So when Delicate Sound of Thunder came out, it was the best collection of a Pink Floyd greatest hits that you could own at the time. And if you're young like us and you didn't, I mean, I think when, uh, I think Dark Side of the Moon either came out right before I was born or came out between when you and I were born. Uh, And then the next one, uh, Wish You Were Here. Wish You Were Here came out, what, 75 or so. I was two. Animals comes out in '77. I was four. Uh, The Wall was a big deal eventually for us because The Wall, they made a movie of The Wall. And obviously the songs are big, you can hear on the radio, but The Wall became kind of a a midnight hit at independent movie theaters. Like, you know, one weekend they do Rocky Horror, one weekend they do The Wall, you know, something like that. So The Wall was kind of in everybody's collective conscious. And then when this finally came out, and we're teenagers, we're of age, and we can see a Pink Floyd show. Because like I said, not everybody can go for one reason or another, but they give you this video... Uh, And it just, it looks amazing. And one of the big reasons we're talking about this right now is because they just re-released it at the time recording this on Friday. They just re-released the uh, remixed, remastered, restored version of the album with eight tracks that weren't included on it in the first time. And of course, there are packages where you can get the DVD and the Blu-ray and also get uh, the movie and I, I just the movie pairs so well with it. I didn't realize, I guess, at the time on the record, there are some songs that were on the record that were not in the movie, and there were songs in the movie that were not in the record. For instance, Another Brick in the Wall Part Two, not in the movie, but was certainly on the record. In the original movie, Great Gig in the Sky, where the three backup singers get to take turns kind of wailing, you know, uh, while the guys are playing. That was in the movie and kind of an important part of the movie really gives those ladies a time to shine, but but not on the record. Now in the restored bit they, they for the most part they put everything back into the record. And we get a few more videos in the new movie or a few more songs in the in the restored movie as well. Although Brick in the Wall did not make it into the restored movie. I guess maybe they just didn't have a good take on that. Or maybe it went a little longer than expected. I'm not sure. Who knows? Uh, but that did not make it into either part of the movie.
1: The story I heard about this was David Gilmore swears up and down. this There were very little to no overdubs on this. And if that really is the case, which I mean, I'd have to take his word for it. It, it was it must have been the most amazing show because it's just it's clear, it's the levels on everything are just fantastic. And uh, to your point, I think that it'd be probably another brick in the wall just didn't fit. That's kind of a kind of a slower song. Like I don't know, maybe if it was it kind of. Maybe in concert it worked okay, but it was kind of like a hard break mm. in the movie, and they just said forget it. You know, one thing I wanted to go back to real quick was you were talking about Roger Waters mm-hmm. at the same time doing his, and I remember Radio Chaos. I remember hearing it and thinking like, Ooh, okay, this is not my cup of tea. It's mm-hmm. a little more involved. But then, unfortunately for him, David Gilmour sang most of the big hits. And that's, that hurts you when you don't have this guy anymore. And like, so now you're going to sing the songs and your voice doesn't match. And right. But, okay. But,
0: and you sang great on like the Fletcher Memorial Home on the final cut there, Roger. Um, <laughs> but yes, most of the hits throughout, David has an incredible voice, an amazing voice. Roger just sounds like he's angry about something, which he generally is. He's been angry his whole life, basically, since his dad died in war. And it
1: works. The songs that he sings, it works for that. And that's great. It's kind of cool to hear the two voices going back and forth on the wall. Mm-hmm. That's, that's awesome. But when you have to say, okay, now I have to sing the songs that I didn't before. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a weird. That's a little strange.
0: Exactly. So they can leave you behind. And all the songs especially if they pick songs that are suited to David, will sound right. And uh, you give up that guitar. I know a lot of people think it's easy to replace a guitar player, even a great guitar player. There are a lot of players who are up to snuff. But for me, David Gilmour can squeeze so much emotion out of those notes. And to hear... Polly explained it. Polly is now his longtime wife. David is not a lyricist. That's why Polly and others have had to help him write lyrics over the years. That's not how he emotes, but you give him the guitar. Obviously, it's very different. What he does is very special. The way he bends and pulls notes to get it to these cool sounds is... I think it's it's amazing. He's top notch. He's he's one of the best.
1: And I think much like we talked about yeah, on the earlier version of this show, Eddie Van Halen, you can tell you can tell David Gilmour. You know that's that's him playing that part. Mm-hmm. And so you're right. You put somebody else on there, and it would just be okay. This is somebody trying to sound like that. They're playing it note for note. They're doing an impression. This isn't the real thing because when you play, especially when you play live, you know you're going to put in different different things. You're going to change it up a little bit, but it's still going to be the soul is still going to be there.
0: That's right. And back to the sound, I mean, um, I read something earlier that they basically booked the tour before they finished the record. Like We know we can go make money on tour. Let's go do that. We'll get the record together eventually. Well, then, David Gilmore's for the most part, but completely in charge now. He's trying to wrap up the record, and then he's trying to get the tour together and get everybody spot on, ready to go. It turns out Nick and Rick were a little bit out of practice. So he had to hand the reins over to Bob Ezrin, who produced Momentary Lapse of Reason, and co-wrote some of the songs, including Learning to Fly, to kind of help get the production and get the live band up to snuff. And on the, you see on the credits on um, Momentary lapse, they all actually brought in uh, Carmine Apasy to punch up some of the drums. And also Jim Keltner. And for people who don't know Jim Keltner, he was a good buddy of George Harrison's. He played the drums on the Traveling Wilburys records. I think he played with John Lennon solo. He was around the Beatles. And is just an incredible session, man, who's played on Probably thousands of records over the years. So, I mean, Nick probably really was out of practice if they brought both those guys in uh, to do different things on the record. It's not rare to have guest performers on a record to really get something tight. Um,
1: and especially if, you, if you've if you got somebody of that caliber. And Carmine's a big heavy metal, hard rock drummer. Mm-hmm. He's been in a lot of stuff. I know he played with Ozzy Osbourne for a while. And I'm just looking at his... Uh, played with Jeff Beck,
0: didn't he? Yeah, Beck he plays Rod Stewart. Yeah. So
1: this guy, he's—I mean—a professional musician. And then maybe that, to my point before, was why you had a double for both Rick and everybody else on there, just in case maybe there was a problem or mm-hmm. there's a low spot. You, you had somebody waiting in the wings that can fill in and just make the sound
0: bigger, fuller, right? And of course, yeah. with the guitar, there's a lot of times there's a guitar part that's just kind of the. They call it the rhythm part, maybe, but it's kind of the bass part of it. And then David would sing, and then he'd flare up to, to play a little riff or a little spot here and there, like a little lick right here and there. Then he'd go back to singing, and then he'd go back to playing his thing. So he needed a, a guitar player to kind of continue the, the bass track, if you will, right. that, that rhythm track. But these these guys are, are pretty talented. So you ought to know, if you're listening to this podcast, you really ought to know who David Gilmore, Nick Mason, and Rick Ryan are. All right, David Gilmore's guitar player and lead singer. Nick Mason, uh, who's the only man to have always been in Pink Floyd, to be in every incarnation of Pink Floyd, plays the drums. And then Rick Wright was a keyboardist and does some backup singing, but it's also kind of takes the lead, takes the kind of Roger part and Comfortably Numb and, uh, and Time, uh, you know, sings on that as well. Next to him, a guy named John Caron on the keyboards. And John had this dark hair that kind of stood up. He looked a little bit maybe like Tim Burton, a famous director with that hair standing up in the 80s. But he was also in the recording of the Momentary Lapse of Reason album and was one of the other co-writers of Learning to Fly. So that's a big deal. He's actually won a Grammy for his work in the past. So he's a pretty amazing musician, did backing vocals and all that stuff. And he was with them on the 94 tour, the division bell tour where they uh, created Pulse, the movie Pulse out of that. Um, and then he did also go on to tour with David on some of his subsequent solo tours, like maybe on, on an island tour. And, and David's got a couple of great DVDs live in Gdansk um, uh, with, I think he does stuff with the Polish symphony there and live in Pompeii uh, at this ancient amphitheater. Uh, Which is really neat. But also in the band is Guy Pratt who played bass. uh, Because someone has to take over for for Roger. Guy's another guy who's been around for a long time. He was also on the Vision Bell tour. And he did play with David Solo. He may have even played with Roger Solo at one point. Uh, And I know right now... Uh, He's in Nick Mason's Saucer Full of Secrets, which is what Nick kind of takes around the country, playing older Pink Floyd and a lot of like the really old going back to the Sid Barrett years, Pink Floyd stuff. There's a new release called Live at the Roundhouse, which is a cool old little venue here in London. Might have gone to see them this year if it weren't for the whole COVID-19 thing. Uh, But Guy's been around and has been in and out of different versions of Pink Floyd of David Gilmour. I think he even played some with like an Australian Pink Floyd show. And from what I can tell is a real personality. I think he's a good guest on talk shows and things like that. The the guitar player uh, backup was Tim Renwick. And Tim had played with a lot of amazing players. He played, uh, I think, with Bowie. He played with Eric Clapton. He played at Live Aid and had a pretty strong list. It was like Mike Oldfield, David Bowie, Eric Clapton... Um play with Rick Wright. So obviously playing with um, did session work for Elton John. So playing with Pink Floyd wasn't too big for him. And if you played
1: at Live Aid,
0: obviously you can handle a big stage.
1: I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in here real quick and I'm gonna i ta- I'm gonna take Scott Page, mm-hmm. the saxophonist. Yeah. I remember watching the the VHS tape them going into the Dogs of War, mm-hmm. right? Like it was a, it was the, they had a slow song called Sorrow, and then it we, they kind of had a little break, and then that the beginning that boom boom boom, mm-hmm. boom 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 boom, and they showed the movie it or the O opens up, and you see the dogs, and they're just they're wolves, and they're running, and it's just starting to go, it's starting to go boom 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 boom, and then they're then they're coming running in, and they start the song, but they still have the movie going in the back. Right. Hey. So then they're running and now the dogs are in kind of looks like the what's going on here. It looks like they're at the they're in the, they're at the, the arena or what they're yeah. doing. And then the one comes running up the stairs and then boom, they cut to Scott and he comes out with the saxophone. i like, that's the coolest thing ever. <laughs> and he had the real long hair, kind of short on top but real long in the back. And he comes out and just starts wailing on it. And just, that I remember just from an artistic filming standpoint, I just thought that was the coolest thing. That
0: was cool. And just,
1: he's he's another guy who did a little research too. He's a he's a big. I think he's an adjunct professor <laughs> somewhere in California. Music. I mean, really, just top notch musician. And again, all of these people were just the top of the top.
0: They are amazing. That's right. And he played a little guitar, too. So they needed to, to pick up a little guitar work. His hair was, I mean, it was like he had a pompadour and then the world's longest mullet. I remember yeah. watching it back then. Because like, in the 80s, you could see some freaky hair. And I just remember seeing, that's about the oddest hairstyle I feel like I've ever Scene. Well, to me, it
1: was a guy who would really commit. That's that's, that's right. the look that you're going for. It's <laughs> not like, oh, you know, I haven't had a haircut for a while. It's like, no, I want. No, no, here's the deal. I want it short on the top, and then really long in the back.
0: That's right. Um, and then there was there was another percussionist, Gary Wallace. You can see this guy in the movie hopping around. Sometimes he jumps up, you know, off both feet to slam the cymbals that are up high. Um, and, you know, again, it's when you're a progressive rock band and you're making this big sound, there's nothing wrong with having a, a little percussion help out there, you know?
1: Well, and especially, too, if I remember correctly, that if you looked at Nick Mason's drum set, it was pretty straight ahead, not a whole lot going on there, just the basics. And then they would, they had the other one kind of in the back. Mm-hmm. away. But that that had a lot of stuff going on. He had a ton of drums back there, and if I remember correctly, too, there were he had a couple of different things that he could he could do fill in on percussion. It wasn't just drums. That's right. So yeah, he was he was working hard back there to fill again fill the sound.
0: And he became a producer and, and obviously toured with other people. So he, you know, again, just the, the level of talent on the stage was unbelievable. And now we get to really, to me, visually about the most important part of the band and that's yes, the, that's the backup singers
2: okay yes please hello pantheon podcast listeners christian swain here to tell you more about my experience with raycon earbuds our family now has three pairs of raycon earbuds around the house and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price and yes she loves them now if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of raycon's
0: These women were so amazing to a teenage wolf. It was unbelievable to, to see these women like just singing their hearts out. like Because, you know, I, I think I'm hot stuff for a teenager. And I'm just like, oh, there's grown women out there who would who would intimidate the heck out of me. Yes, there's three of them right there. Three amazing women, Rachel Fury, Durga McBroom, and credited in the movie and on the record as Margaret Taylor found her. Her name is actually Machin or Machan. I'm not exactly how to pronounce it. M-A-C-H-A-N Taylor. And you can find her. She's continued to work and had a long career and played and toured with so many people over the years, including people like David Bowie, and had a it's just had a great long career. Yeah, she played with Government Mule. You know, Government Mule has done Dark Side of the Mule tour and, and record before, and, and she toured... With them on the, a couple of times for that. Neil Sean, REO Speedwagon, Belinda Carlisle, Morris Day. I mean, she's done a lot. And she's become, I think, a, a teacher and, and professor, you know, works at the Clive Davis School of Recorded Music in New York um, and still teaches. And has had a, a pretty neat career. And she was the one on the very left, if you're watching visually. Long, dark hair. All of them basically in the same black mini dress. But she's on, she's on the left. The woman in the middle was Durga McBroom, again an amazing talent, Uh, and she was with Pink Floyd for a long time, did also sing on the Division Bell tour, and later in this tour, Machen left. And her sister, Durga's sister, Lorelai McBroom, came in to be that third voice. The McBroom sisters have continued to tour, and they had a, a, a band called Blue Pearl for a while. And I saw them just this past summer. Uh, I guess it was the summer before, summer of 2019, I saw the McBroom Sisters at, at, on one of the small stages on a bill in one of the big summer festivals here. I don't think it was Glastonbury, but it was one of the, the big festivals they do around here. So the McBroom Sisters still tour, and it was it was kind of a progressive festival. So I feel like their time in Pink Floyd was something that was not only a lot of fun, but it, it's something that they can continue to earn money off of, you know, to be associated with to this day. And and I think once you're associated with an act like Pink Floyd, um, hopefully it's positive because it's going to follow you the rest of your life.
1: And it's interesting going back and watching that again for the thousandth time. The, the fact that what I liked is that they were, yes, backup singers, but they were prominently featured. They had a couple, you know, definitely a lot of cutaways to them, and them being attractive uh, did not. Or hinder that at all, yeah. but the fact that they were chosen because they could sing, they could just belt out these songs. And to be honest with you, the 15 year old me was infatuated, and the me of today is still like just, still infatuated. And I know yeah.
0: we're not allowed to say that women are beautiful or sexy or that's you know somehow wrong. Um, but the third one, the one on the right, the one who was standing next to David Gilmore, Rachel. That would
1: be Rachel. Yes, Rachel, Rachel Fury. Three
0: so beguiling and they knew it too because the film zeroed in on her a lot now she's kind of the lead backup vocalist and she did get to sing some duets with david including comfortably numb can you imagine standing on that stage every night and singing comfortably numb as a duet with david f gilmore i can't i can't believe it and then when he goes into the solo You're the closest one to them. You're closer than the people in the front row. You get to watch that every single night. And, of course, look, the guys in Pink Floyd were nothing to look at when they were younger. Now they're in their 40s. You know, they maybe have a couple pounds on them. They dress like they're going to the mall or something like that. You have to have something visually interesting on stage. And having these you know, soulful, sultry songstresses next to you. And they had choreographed moves, right? the way they moved their legs and moved their arms and stuff like that. Again, giving them the opportunity in Great Gig in the Sky and some other songs where they got to go off and and do some heavy duty singing. Uh, But obviously, Great Gig in the Sky really shows you the power of each one of them. Now, in doing some research for this podcast, because I have ambitions, I figure, well, maybe we could get... Durga McBroom. Maybe we could get, you know, Rachel Fury on, you know, or even if we can't interview him live, maybe we could send him some questions, maybe they'd answer them. And you and I were not the only people beguiled by Rachel Fury. And her real name is apparently Rachel Brennick. And she was a child actor. You know, she was in stuff in the early 70s when she was a kid. And then she actually made a song under the name Weenie Bopper, um, about like David. <laughs> I mean, I that. Yeah, I know. I somehow <laughs> slipped through the cracks. Um, maybe it didn't come across the Atlantic, but it was basically just because so many people love David, um, David Cassidy, and some of the other you know real heartthrobs of the day. So it was kind of meant to take that on. And then by the late seventies, she was a uh, in-demand studio singer, on contract singer, and she worked on a lot of different albums. And then she goes out on this tour, the uh, Delicate Sound of Thunder tour. And obviously it's a long tour. Uh, I mean, a couple years, but after that she quit the business. That's it. No one's seen or heard from her since. James Guthrie is a guy who worked on the production side for Pink Floyd had been like an engineer producer for years. And he helped work, did some mixing and stuff on uh, momentary lapse. He was dating Rachel at that time, and that's how she got introduced to the band. And then she totally went away, and nobody knows anything about her. Allegedly, she lives in London. She might have gotten married and had a couple kids. She might have been active in animal rights. That's it, that's all we know about Rachel Fury Rachel Brennan. So if anyone out there has any idea, now hopefully she just decided, hey look, I was a child actor, now I just did two years of Hard on the Road, I don't want this to be my life. you know. I, I want to settle down and have a real life, and maybe she just got out of it. I hope nothing bad happened where she said, okay, that's it. I'm never doing this ever again. But for from what I can see on the internet and stuff, there was a guy in Australia who's basically writing love letters to her. Oh, beautiful Rachel, what happened to you? I'm like, okay, dude, that's a little creepy. I mean, you're, yeah, you need to calm down. You're not the only one who had the VHS back in the day. No. I mean, you know. We, <laughs> You know, and she was lovely and, you know, she was incredibly talented and soulful. And I don't know, she just had this knowing smile on her face most of the time while she was singing those songs or when she was doing her moves to the beat. So an incredibly set of talented people. Um, and, you know, the re-release, and I, I did not buy the re-release that just came out November 20th, but I bought the Latter Days box set, which is ridiculously more expensive which came out last year. Actually, my my wife gave it to me for Christmas, but it gave you the remastered movie. It gave you the remastered album. Uh, And so now this year, they're kind of breaking that out. You can just get the album. You can get the album with the DVD and Blu-ray and revisit it all. And And it's incredible. In addition to that in the box set, it gives you a couple other videos. One is Pink Floyd in Venice, which apparently towards the end of the tour in 89, they did a show in Venice where they got out on a barge, and then they broadcast the show to countries all over Europe. So you could stand in the square in Venice, which comes right up to the water, but then there are also, you know, a thousand boats sitting out there as well. And the band was the same, with the exception that Monshawn uh, Taylor was not there, and Lorelai McBroom was. But you could tell they'd all been on the road a long time, because Rachel's hair was a good three or four inches longer. Gilmore's hair was longer. Guy Pratt, you know, had had a mop and it was moppier. You know, they, they'd all been like, we have been doing this for a long time. And there was even a part on Wish You Were Here where David kind of forgot to sing along. You know, he was playing like, well, that sounds good. <laughs> and, and then he's doing
1: something else. He's supposed
0: to say, so, so you think you could tell. He forgot the first so. And he, and he you know, the camera kind of caught him going, <laughs> Whoops, yeah, so you think you can tell, you know. (laughs) And that night they didn't have the black mini dresses on. They had the lavender purple mini dresses on. Um, So it it was an amazing, it was a a neat show. And then um, the next year they played Nebworth. I think Lorelei and Durga were there, but Miss Rachel was gone. Most of the rest of the band, I think the whole rest of the band was still the same, but uh, Rachel was gone. And if I'm not mistaken, that was their only appearance of the year. And from what I understand... Paul McCartney was on that bill, and when you're Paul McCartney's manager, you're pretty confident that Paul McCartney's going to go on last anywhere you go, any <laughs> festival or any show you might do, and I think the manager Pink Floyd's like, no, we just concluded the most successful tour in the history of the world. We'll be closing the show that night, right? We'll close after the sun goes down. Paul can play while the sun's up. We're going to, and I think a little bit of a fight is but but... Uh, the fact of the matter is Pink Floyd closed the show.
1: Yeah, and, and uh, like you said, coming off that massive tour, I mean, no offense to Paul McCartney, but by 1980, what was that, 88, 89? 80, well, 1990 was Nebworth. Yeah, no yeah. So, yeah. G- offense, Paul. Yeah, give
0: my regards to Broad Street,
1: Paul. Um, not so much. <laughs> but, you know, you were you were talking about stage moves, mm-hmm. and I think David Gilmore probably, if he moved three feet from that microphone. He'd fall down. Up and back. He'd he fall down, man. Yeah.
0: He could yeah. sway a little bit. He could maybe step forward, to step on a pedal or something, yeah. you know. Um, but he's not going to move a whole lot from that spot. because. But the fact of the matter is, you could get hit with something. They had lights that were, like, rotating stuff. You you might walk into something, man. So you, you had to stay pretty tight to your spot there. But it, it's just hearing it again, clearly, and hearing it, you know, with the new, with the songs kind of put back in there, uh, the songs that we didn't get the first time around.
1: So you would say... Okay, so your recommendation is because I don't have the updated one, but I've got my eye on it. It's a solid purchase. It, they did enough to make you want to do this again, to purchase it again. They cleaned it up.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. The, the way you remember the film being so awesome, just the way it looked. Well, they have cleaned it up, you know, and and tried to digitize yes. a little bit. So that's great. Everybody looks amazing. The sound is much better, and they put stuff back in there. So stuff that you didn't see last time. Plus, you know, like. Comfortably Numb, the solo is a little longer. If you've listened to the song on that record 150 times the way you and I have, you will hear it. You will be like, okay, yeah, that is a little bit different. They, there's a few different songs where things are just a little bit different in there. And they put in Signs of Life, uh, a new machine, Terminal Frost, and a new machine, part two, which are all from Momentary Lapse. They put all those back on there. They put in On the Run, Breaking the Sky, which was on the film, but not in on the discs originally. That's on there, too. Um, and then Welcome to the Machine, kind of surprised that that was never on the discs originally. But I know back then it was more about LPs and cassettes than CDs, and you had to have only a certain amount of time. They had to choose right. what was going to go on and what wasn't. You're not going to cut money. You're not going to cut time. And, you know, one that I love that is in the movie but not on the records until now is One Slip. One Slip is a big song from Momentary Lapse, actually contains the phrase a momentary lapse of reason in it. And shockingly to some, I know to to purists, they play it between Comfortably Numb and Run Like Hell, which to me is, honestly, it works for me because I love that song and it's upbeat and it's got a good groove to it. In some ways, I think it's crazy to play anything after Comfortably Numb, Because for me, it's one of the top five, maybe top three rock song, anthems, whatever you want to call it, all time. It has never come on the radio. It has never been in a movie or anything where I said, okay, can we turn that down or let's change the channel? I'm not in the mood right now. I'm in a terrible mood. If that song comes on, boom, instantly changed.
1: So what you're saying is that if you're sitting there watching Play of Lives and they finish Comfortably Numb and then they go into it again, you would say – Yeah, one
0: more time, do it. Dude, I could do that for days, okay? And if I've had a few beers, you know, and they want to play it again – I mean, it may clear out the rest of the audience. I will sit there by myself in the arena <laughs> with my hands up in the air. You'll be sitting on the concourse, like, "Is Mac coming or what, man? I gotta get home."
1: Oh, I think I'd be. I think I'd be right there with him. See, you. that's what I thought. Be, that's could, that's why we do
0: this together, Jackson. <laughs>
1: he he could play that solo. That could go on for twenty minutes. Just, it's like he's flying, or he's making you fly. You know, when you hear that, just, I mean, just wail on that thing, man. I'll listen as long as you want to play it. I know.
0: And I saw Roger do, actually I saw him on his last two tours, on the Us and Them tour, which is fairly recently, last few years. And before that, he had done The Wall. He did a big, fat production of The Wall that was really amazing. And on the last tour, Us and Them, G.E. Smith was his guitar player. And GE is a heck of a guitar yeah. player. He was on Saturday Night Live for decades, and he was in Hall & Oates, and he's done a lot of amazing session work and he's kind of a guitar historian. And I'm like, that's great that you got him. And it did sound good, but there is nothing like David Gilmore playing that song live, playing those solos live. It's, it's unbelievable.
1: Well, again, I mean, yes, G.E. Smith is a fantastic musician and he can play note for note, no problem, but it's an impersonation. It's not the person who actually made that up from out of his head. That's right.
0: And there are other little things in there. You know, they take out, I think, a slap bass part in one, Uh, you know, I think on Shine On You Crazy Diamond. Originally, maybe you only got part one and then you get the other parts, you know, in the release. So listen, ask Santa. I promise you you will be so happy you got it. And probably I would say get the get the deluxe package, get the one with the DVD and the Blu-ray, and you know, if that comes with books and everything. The latter days is an amazing box set. I mean it's it's five or six CDs, five or six DVDs, five Blu-rays. They give you a, a 45 of Arnold Lane at the kind of benefit. Concert or the remembrance concert thing for Sid Barrett. There's incredible artwork by Storm Thurgeson in it. There's other little knickknacks and things, postcards and pictures and stickers, backstage laminates, all that kind of stuff. But it's hundreds of dollars. And really, it's four discs, it's two records, two live concerts, and then some additional material. I mean, that's really it. It's just all that in all sorts of different packaging. You have to be a crazy person like me. To want that, but it's they were all remastered, and I didn't have any of the remasters. The packaging is amazing. They added stuff back in, so having the whole thing is great. But yes, go out and get Delicate Sound of Thunder, the re-release remastered. I would get the CD and the DVD. I, I think it's worth it.
1: Yeah, if they've if they've remastered the. The film, yes, because, like we said, it's it's such a great companion, and it really you really feel like you were there, and you really feel like you missed out if you didn't see it. So definitely go out and get that again, because I can watch it a thousand more times.
0: A thousand more times. It never gets old. I just watched it the whole thing last night, and then I watched the whole Venice concert, and then I watched uh, them doing Nedworth again. I just... I, I can't get enough of it. They say that stuff that you learn or music that you hear and get attached to when you're growing up, especially those kind of formative teenage years where you're kind of figuring out who you are, nothing you ever hear after that is going to hit you quite the same way. You, you may you may get into stuff later that you love, new stuff may be released that really kind of hits you in the right spot, uh, but those those songs that you hear when you're like 8 to like 18, if they form an imprint, there is no way getting away from them. And I'm just glad that this was one of the ones that imprinted big on me.
1: It, it was just kind of like the perfect storm. The songs were great. The time in your life was great. The, the whole deal just, it, it, because there are things that I go back and listen to from that time. I'm like, eh, that didn't age so well. I can't say that about this. this. This is just as great today as it was when it came out.
0: Fantastic. And
1: the, fa- and the fact, too, that it was, I mean, you pay concerts are expensive. Don't get me wrong, I'll never say that they're not. But to me, paying for something like that, it's not just the songs, it's the whole experience of the the show and the lighting and everything. You come out saying, wow, that was a that was an experience.
0: Exactly. You know, and that's why because I did get to see them once on the Division Bell tour. I saw them in Tampa. And apparently after the Tampa tickets went on sale, they then put up an Orlando show. And I don't know if I didn't realize that or I consciously said, oh, well, I've already got tickets to Tampa, so I'm not going to go to the Orlando show. Because now, because, you know, back then, we, we lived in Orlando. Tampa's an hour and a half away, maybe. When you're a student, you don't have a ton of money. And a Pink Floyd ticket is a little expensive. Uh, and whereas today I'd say yes, I will go. I will take two weeks off of work and go see Pink Floyd if they, if they were to tour around. That's not. That's a no-brainer. I don't have to think about that. But back then it's like no, I don't think I can afford to see them twice. Plus I got to see them twice within a few days of each other. That might be too much. Now I'm just like you idiot. You should have. You should have dropped out of school for a week. It's just school. <laughs> you know, just go go tour around and see him. Just follow the tour bus. Yeah, you know what's wrong with you. So uh, that's that's what we want to kind of to impart on you today is the effect that it had on us and still had on us. The way the film is the perfect companion to the record. And again, they could show some of those as videos later, right? It wasn't just the "Learning to Fly" video. Eventually, they could release "Comfortably Numb" as a video, or at least show it on MTV and get. Kids who didn't get to live through the wall in the late seventies, early eighties. By the late eighties, now you're mature enough to handle it, you can hear some of these songs via MTV.
1: And not have to be not have to be and I don't want to weighed down is not the right tour that right term, but the wall's pretty heavy duty if you listen to the whole thing start to finish. So they could pick out songs that could get you into that without having to go through everything at that point in time.
0: Right. You know, because my wife doesn't know much about rock music. It's and when I told her I was taking her to Roger waters and that he was in pink floyd i thought well i could explain the wall to her but that that's gonna be hard to that's do why, why don't i just take her you know and of course in the first the beginning to start off a plane that someone our size could fit in you know a plane a prop plane goes from the back of the arena and crashes into the wall of the front of arena and she'd never seen anything like that and from there she was enthralled you know uh, the music's amazing and whoever he had playing guitar Uncomfortably Dumb, he got to play the solo. Roger's down low, but the guitar player got to play the guitar solo on top of the wall under a spot. Okay, yeah. And that's really cool. And David did—I saw the footage of it. He did play it one night with him somewhere. I don't know if it was in Europe or in London or where, but but somewhere he did one night where he did play it, which would have my head would have exploded if I had been there that night. But you know, the end when the wall comes down, like it, it's just—it's you're right. It's so heavy. It's about how the the war industrial complex and politicians and religion and big business. Are all there to crush your soul, you know, and turn you into a robot?
1: And and I think that for us, we—that's a big product of living in England and and having that imprint of the, of, especially in nineteen, what was that, 79, 1980 when it came out. You still had World War Two hanging around that we never had. So I mean, you could listen to it and say, oh, you know, I see. But you know, the whole thing about how the, the institutionalizing, sending people to these big schools, and yeah, yeah the 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 world is going to crush you into this powder. Right, that we never really had.
0: You're just fodder, you know, for Correct. the for the working gears. And yeah, I mean, obviously, looking in America after World War II, all we had to do was get our boys home, and then we could sit back and get rich. In England, there's still just rubble everywhere. You know, it's bombed out stuff. And in the Midlands, you know, not just in London, but but everywhere, stuff was bombed out. And like going playing around a bunch of rubble was pretty normal for kids. And Roger lost his father in World War II, and he had been a pacifist and a conscientious objector, Uh, wasn't going to serve, but then he realized, okay, these Nazi dudes are are pretty bad. We've got to stand up to this. So he did go fight, and he did lose his life, the same way my grandfather did. My mother never met her father because he died in battle, probably right near Roger Waters' dad, six weeks after she was born. However, she did not make a lifetime about being bitter about it. Not that I'm, you know, telling Roger, you're not allowed to be bitter. You're allowed to have these feelings. But it just seems like, I don't know that you ever get over losing a parent like that. But it just never seemed to leave his work. I wonder if he's ever found any peace over this at all.
1: I I don't know, and and I can't imagine, and I don't know David Gilmore personally, shock but to have to work with somebody like that like you think okay maybe okay so the next one we're going to do something about how how the world is terrible and how everybody <laughs> wants okay. Uh, okay enough of this i just can't take it anymore i got to do my own thing i've got to branch out and it's interesting to hear the Pink Floyd stuff that that Gilmore did on his own, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. How different that sounds! I mean, it's still in the under the umbrella of the band, but it's just it's not the same. I
0: know. And there's um, there's a DVD you can get called Pink Floyd Live in Pompeii uh, that came out in '72. I think it came out ahead of Dark Side of the Moon. But so it's it's part concert and and them playing in this old ancient Roman amphitheater which David Gilmore went and played a concert at later um, and was released on DVD and and disc as well. But so it kind of shows them playing. It's a documentary, so it has a lot of interviews and studio time. It shows them in Abbey Road, I think, doing some Dark Side of the Moon stuff. And I remember I was watching with my buddy Tom one afternoon after playing basketball, and there's Gilmore and Roger Waters sitting right next to each other, you know, eating lunch. You know, everybody's talking about stuff. I'm like, can you imagine those two? Sitting that close to each other today, my understanding is Gilmore really can't stand Roger Rogers kind of mellowed a little bit towards the whole i can 't believe you took my ban or you know i 'm suing you for using the ban that I quit. Rogers mellowed a bit on that, but Gilmore really hasn't quite forgiven and forgotten
1: I was going to say I think the only re- the only way they can sit that close to each other now is if there were lawyers in between them all or, right. or around.
0: That's right. It's it's
1: just crazy to me to think that two guys who created all of that sound, all of that music that were so important to the sound of rock and roll, like, you literally can't stand each other now. How do you get to that point? It's, it's, It's crazy to me.
0: Well, because of the money they both have, and they're both very wealthy men, they don't have to. You know, if you were in a middling band and like the only way that you can kind of continue to have a good life or to earn a decent living, is to get back in this band and just kind of get together with your guys. Yeah, maybe they work it out. But they don't have to be on the same continent as each other. They, they don't have to be close to each other. And remember, they played for the G8 or did the Live 8. was kind of the last thing they did yeah. for Bob Geldof. It was was that 2006, 2008 something. The four of them did get together and play a few songs. And apparently, Roger even came in for that. Um, Say, okay, here's what we ought to do. Let's do this. We can sing this. I can do this. You can do this. And David kind of took a gulp and said, Roger, we are Pink Floyd, pointing to him and Rick and Nick. We would like to do these three or four songs, and we would like you to join us. And of course, Roger said yes. But even at the end of the show, look, they sounded good. It was cool to see. The four of them together, even if it was just for a brief moment, and even at the end, Roger's like, Come on, man, come hug me, come put my arm around me. And David's kind of reluctantly like, Yeah, I guess, uh, I guess I gotta do this. We gotta take a bow. Yeah, I guess I'll let him touch me. Uh, you know, at least that's the way it came off to me. So, I mean, I think they're cordial enough if they were to bump into each other, they wouldn't be hateful, but I think David would just rather be doing anything else. And I remember watching. Roger Waters being interviewed for 60 Minutes. Don't you miss David Gilmour's musicianship? He's like, no, because I'm surrounded by it. I'm like, oh, yeah? Who you got to play David G- G- Gilmour's guitar part? I'm like, and again, G.E. Smith, brilliant guitar player. It's not David Gilmour.
1: And, and you can't tell me if, you can't tell me that the first time, I don't know how they wrote the song. I don't know, you know, what the mechanics were. But you can't tell me the first time that he laid down that solo, you weren't just, wow, I, oh, I got it. <sighs> I got a tear in my eye. That was so good.
0: And that's David Gilmour's contribution to the wall, right? Because for the most part, the wall is Roger's baby. And he wrote um, That's the only
1: that's the only song he did not write on his own. He wrote everything else except
0: comfortably except numb. Except comfortably numb. And yes, so the wall is a masterpiece but comfortably numb on its own, take it out of the wall, separate it, put it out on Mount Olympus of greatest songs all time. It is super special, and it's because of Gilmore's guitar work and his singing. Yeah, the vocals, yeah, Yeah, Roger does the ominous part, like, okay, he does that stuff. But then the yeah. pretty part, which is what the Rachel... The soaring part. Yes, the yeah. soaring part, the, the inspiring part, the part where you can't stop listening or take your eyes off of Rachel Fury while she's singing it with David Gilmore. <laughs> <laughs> this is a triumph of mankind, comfortably numb, And on Delicate Sound of Thunder, which now has a little bit longer solo, Gary, which I think you'll like... Mm -hmm. yeah i mean when it comes to pink floyd more is more you can't just you know correct i I want more less because they're not making anymore and that's the sad thing i mean rick wright died not too long after they did the g8 thing so there will never be the four of them together again they're too old i think to do pink floyd straight up pink floyd either with roger without him even if the two of them Nick Mason and David Gilmore said, okay, we'll do this one more time. I don't think they'll do that. Uh, I just don't think they want to. It would be too big a production. There would be too much pressure to make hundreds of millions of dollars. They should be pretty well set up by now. And David Gilmore can just tour if he wants to. But again, they're in their 70s, fabulously wealthy. I mean, Nick Mason does do his Saucer Full of Secrets thing. Obviously, Roger is in good shape into that huge Us and Them tour, which was amazing. I think we're done. I think we're done on new Pink Floyd. They did put out The Endless River, which is not included in the Latter-day box set, by the way. Uh, It's kind of like the one thing that didn't really make it in there from the post-Roger era. But, of course, I have it. I have the deluxe version. I bought it the first day it came out. Because it's the end of Pink Floyd, right? And it's got Rick Wright on there. It's got some good stuff on there. Um, Some of them are just kind of themes and shapes. They never really did take the time to work out. kind of fell out of the momentary lapse and division bell sessions. But that's it. You know, it's it's gone. I mean, maybe they could release some more live albums, stuff that they recorded on those tours. But the thing is, it's not like it's going to be all that different from Pulse or Delicate Sound of Thunder because they kind of stuck in the script. There's so much to coordinate between the lights and the sound and the cameras and everybody on stage. You can't just say, all right, let's play one we haven't played in five years. That doesn't happen. It is choreographed to the second, maybe. the, the video jazz exploration. Yeah, I mean, the video. I mean, sometimes David allegedly would turn around and watch the video to know when he needed to catch up or maybe slow down a little bit <laughs> in the song, you know, because it has to be on time. So what you see matches what you're hearing. So... Yeah, it's not likely to say. Uh, all right, let's play echoes. We haven't done that yeah. one in fifteen years. No, they're not going to do that. They can't.
1: And and the, the thing is too, even if they were to do something, it would never surpass those two. Or, even, even the pulse. I mean, I saw I saw what they put out for the pulse record, mm-hmm. and it was good, but it wasn't delicate sound of thunder. It just wasn't this, It was a kind of a I don't want to say retread, but it wasn't as groundbreaking.
0: I have to agree with you totally there, Uh, because I was excited to see Pulse, especially after I'd seen the show. It's like, now I get to have a video record of the concert that I saw, and it was really amazing. At the end of Delicate Sound, the big kind of disco ball comes above the, the O, uh, or in front of the O, rather, and then it opens up. On this tour, it was like they had a huge tent between the 30 and 30-yard 30 lines of the football field, and then the tent's roof opened, and then, you know, a 70-foot-high thing came out with the disco ball on top and spun around the whole stadium, and then, of course, it opened up to reveal the lights out from it, and I just thought, that's amazing. But even the video quality I didn't feel was as good on Pulse. Like, it was on, it was shot on good film... Uh, delicate sound and pulse felt more like it was video or just not as high quality film as the the first one
1: almost like an afterthought like hey we should film this what do we have whereas whereas you could tell delicate sound of thunder was they knew this was going to be a big production they knew they were going to put this out as a video package so let's get it right the first time the editing the sound everything was just fantastic
0: plus on pulse they did Dark Side of the Moon in order, in, in its
1: totality,
0: which is the first time I ever, certainly ever, seen anybody do that. Kind of the first time I heard about it. Now it's kind of a theme, you know. Uh, bands go out and say we're going to play this. You know, I saw Rush do Moving Pictures last year. I watched the Cult do Sonic Temple. You know, Yes has done tours where they will re- bring back two or sometimes even three albums. Um, and this year when I was supposed to see a Royal Albert Hall, they were going to do Relayer. But but this is the first time I'd seen that. And so they did the great gig in the sky, this time without Miss Rachel. And I, I thought, you know, it, it's good, but because you're right, I mean, it's they didn't have that many new songs from the Division Bell. They, they played a few of them. But then it was basically, all right. More division bell, less momentary lapse, and then all the hits you can fit in that weren't on dark side. And so, you know, I like us and them. You know, I, I like the stuff that they had on the delicate sound versus pulse. Again, I was psyched to get pulse, I was obviously psyched to see them, and they've had a couple of nice releases of pulse. I've had it on Laserdisc, I've had it on DVD, and now from the latter years I have it on DVD and Blu-ray. And and they punched it up, they restored some stuff, but There's just something magical. And again, I think it's got something to do with the time in our lives and our discovery period there, Jackson. But if you had it on cassette and VHS, you owe it to yourself. You go Walmart to your wife and say, I put this on the Christmas list right now. You deserve so
1: it. It's number one on the Christmas list. I'm moving it up. Yeah, we'll have to get, get the uh, the surround sound going for that because yeah, it, it is. It's immersive. Yeah, and then it's just it's built for something like that. Just to put it on, sit back, relax. We're going through the whole thing, and we're going on a little journey here.
0: Well, that about ends things here at the Ugly American Werewolf in London podcast. Thanks for listening. For Action Jackson, I am Mac B the Wolf coming to you live from just off Abbey Road here in London. Please tune in next week. where We'll have all sorts of good rock and roll tidbits for you. Until then, did we get something right? Did we get something wrong? Did we leave something out that's important to you? I know there are a lot of big Pink Floyd fans here in the UK and across the United States. Let us know. Tweet us at ugly Check out next week's podcast. It'll be full of great tidbits as well. Until next week, be cool and stay safe.